When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and in every episode, I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're talking about the bookend martyrs of the Scottish Reformation. Before we get into that, I want to share a couple of the most recent reviews we've had from Apple and Spotify. This one comes from Apple from Stacy Magee, who says, Thank you for all these stories. I love stories and especially ones about martyrs and missionaries. Keep up the good work. And these next ones come from Spotify from the latest episode uh, that we did on Mary Reed. And this first one, I'm not sure how to pronounce this username, but I believe it is Diofsa2. Uh, beautiful story, a life well lived for Christ. And Gracie Bell says, this story was so inspiring. Thank you for sharing missionary stories in this format. Gospel Adorned says, my friend just told me about this podcast and I love it. And Pat says, great episode. Thanks for all you do. So thank you guys for your very kind words and positive and encouraging reviews. I felt it was time that we went back and covered the life of an ancient martyr, but I didn't quite make it that far. And instead, I came across these two martyrs from the days of the Scottish Reformation. Actually, there's three of them, so technically it's no longer bookends, but I thought that it was a catchy title. And then I think you'll also agree that this other man needed to be mentioned as well. But before we talk about them, we actually need to do a quick summary of what was happening in England, Scotland, and France in the mid to late 1500s. Because the Scottish Reformation is not a cut and dry event where one day they're Catholic and then boom, they're Protestant. It was actually a lengthy and confusing process as most European history tends to be, but I'll try to summarize it as succinctly as possible because this is not a deep dive into the Reformation itself, uh, but just focusing on the people. But in the early to mid-16th century, the Protestant Reformation was in full swing, and Scotland was decidedly Catholic, but there were some reform murmurings. And then in 1534, England turned everything on its head and became a Protestant nation almost 30 years into Henry VIII's reign. And James V, who was a nephew of Henry VIII, because all of the European monarchies are somehow related, he was the king of Scotland and was hard up for cash because the royal court was known for partying hardy and living it up. And he began flirting with Protestantism only so that the Pope would give him more tax breaks to remain Catholic. And he also used the church to fill vacancies with his illegitimate children and his personal favorites, which is a real problem that we'll see in this story. And then in 1542, he dies, and his only heir to the throne is his daughter Mary, who is a six-day-old infant. She will go on to become Mary, Queen of Scots, but she is not yet. Political turmoil ensues with both France and England in competition for who would control the Scottish throne through marriage to infant Mary, and this period became known as the Rough Wooing and 
rough it was, because England's way of wooing Scotland was to repeatedly attack her while the French supplied Scotland with troops and supplies, and both sides spent an absolute fortune in this endeavor. But unsurprisingly, France won out, and Mary was betrothed to James II, and she left Scotland for France, where she would be safe from England. Now, as far as Protestant persecutions during the Reformation go, Scotland's actually wasn't that bad. There was no widespread persecution commanded by the king or anything like that. Um, There actually weren't even that many martyrs, but there are more than we cover in this episode, obviously. Uh, But the persecutions in Scotland came primarily from just two cardinals, James Beaton and later his nephew, uh, who's David Beaton. Now, before we get any further into this story, we actually have to go back about 20 years and talk about the very first martyr of the Scottish Reformation, Patrick Hamilton. Patrick is born in 1504 as a minor Scottish noble. His grandfather on his mother's side was the second son of James II. And when he was 13, he was appointed as an abbot to a town in the Highlands, but it was just a formal title without any real responsibility or authority. But the stipend he received from the position allowed him to study at the University of Paris. And it's while he was there that he discovered the writings of Martin Luther. And when he returned to Scotland in 1523, he was admitted into St. Andrews, which was the seat of the Catholic Church in Scotland. And he attained a position as a facilitator of worship using his own music written to be used during solemn high mass. But even then, he'd been reading up on the reforming doctrines and became more and more convinced of their truths. And so he began to spread these ideas among his friends and colleagues, which earned him the attention of Cardinal James Beaton, who was the Archbishop of St. Andrews. James was perhaps the most powerful man in the country, and he was the main reason that the king sided with France against England. And the English ambassador described him as the greatest man both of lands and experience within this realm, and noted to be very crafty and dissimulating. And when he ordered that Patrick ought to be arrested and tried, Patrick fled to Germany and enrolled himself in the new Protestant University of Marburg. But then three years later, in 1527, he returns to Scotland and begins preaching openly. He was very popular and powerfully connected because of his uncle and then also some friends he had made uh, during his time abroad. And he renounced clerical celibacy and married a noblewoman whose name is not known Uh, And then he was invited to speak at a conference at St. Andrews by uh, David Beaton, who was now sharing archbishop duties with his uncle. Now, Patrick knows this is not a friendly uh, invitation to a conference. It would actually lead to his death. But this time he didn't balk. And so he was allowed to preach and debate for about a month so as to give them more evidence against him. But instead, this plan backfired and many more people became convinced of his message. He even published a soon-to-be-popular book called Patrick's Places, which taught the distinction between the law and the gospel and faith versus works, as taught by Martin Luther. And then finally, he was summoned before a council of bishops and clerics with David Beaton presiding, and he was asked to give an account of his teachings, and he held firm. And he was sentenced to be burned at the stake in front of the chapel at St. Andrew's that very day in order to keep his uncle from intervening or giving his friends time to act. The execution drew a large crowd, but the fire was lit at noon and then refused to stay lit, and instead it smoked horribly, and so more gunpowder and more wood had to be added, and this went on for six hours until Patrick had finally succumbed to the smoke and the flames, and he was only 24 years old when he died. 
But after his death, James Beaton said that if he had to burn any more heretics, he would do so in the deep, deep cellars so that no one would know because the reek of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has infected as many as it blew upon. George Wishart is the next martyr we'll talk about, and he is the reason why this episode is not a bookend. He was born in 1513. He goes to the university in France and becomes a priest, coming back to Scotland in 1538 as a schoolteacher, and he begins teaching his students the New Testament and the original Greek, which was forbidden. A bishop caught wind of what he was doing, and George fled to England. Interestingly, he comes under fire for a similar reason in England and is examined by Thomas Cranmer, under whom he recanted, but it's not really clear what he recanted of. Um, And then he spends the next few years in Switzerland and then Germany before finally coming back to Scotland in 1543. A couple years after he returns, a plague broke out in the city of Dundee, and as soon as he heard of it, he went there immediately and began preaching and caring for the sick telling them of a disease worse than the plague, which was sin. And he shared the gospel with the afflicted. And hearing of what he was doing, David Beaton sent a priest to kill him with a dagger. And George disarmed the priest and then protected him from the angry angry crowd, insisting that he was unhurt. And then later, another attempt was made on his life, where a message was supposedly sent from a friend that he should come quickly because the friend was very ill. And the letter was false. It was sent at the behest of Cardinal Beaton, and instead, 60 men were lying in wait wait to kill him when he arrived. And he traveled about halfway, and he got this feeling that something was really wrong. So he told his friends who were with him that they should go ahead, and he would stay behind, and they could see whether the report was true or if it was a trap. And his friends confirmed that it was indeed a trap, and they relayed this information to George, who said, I know I shall end my life by that bloodthirsty man's hands, but it will not be in this manner. And it is possible that he was one of the men responsible for an assassination attempt on David Beaton. But the evidence for that is rather flimsy, but it does come up in his story, so I figured I'd I'd share it. Uh, but he traveled all over Scotland preaching against the papacy and the abuses in the church. And by this time, he was accompanied by his disciple, John Knox, who was acting as a bodyguard to George, carrying around a literal broadsword, which is the coolest image. And I don't know why that isn't depicted uh, more frequently, because that is just that would be so cool. I actually I want somebody to commission that painting or whatever we do now with AI or whatever. I want to see that image. And then in 1546, George is finally arrested near Edinburgh and he's taken to St. Andrews, where he was kept in the dungeon until his trial. I'll read now from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. The cardinal immediately proceeded to the trial of Wishart, against whom no less than 18 articles were exhibited. Mr. Wishart answered the respective articles with great composure of mind and in so learned and clear a manner as greatly surprised most of those who were present. After the examination was finished, the archbishop endeavored to prevail upon Mr. Wishart to recant, but he was too firmly fixed in his religious principles and too much enlightened with the truth of the gospel to be in the least moved. On the morning of his execution, there came to him two friars from the cardinal, one of whom put on him a black linen coat, and the other brought several bags of gunpowder, which they tied about different parts of his body. As soon as he arrived at the stake, the executioner put a rope round his neck and a chain around his middle, upon which he fell on his knees and thus exclaimed, O thou Savior of the world, have mercy upon me. Father of heaven, I commend my spirit into thy holy hands." After this, he prayed for his accusers, saying, I beseech thee, Father of heaven, forgive them that they have, from ignorance or an evil mind, forged lies of me. I forgive them with all of my heart. I beseech Christ to forgive them that have ignorantly condemned me. 
He was then fastened to the stake, and the wood, being lighted immediately, set fire to the powder that was tied about him, which blew into a flame and smoke. The governor of the castle, who stood so near that he was sent with the flame, exhorted the martyr in a few words to be of good cheer and to ask the pardon of God for his offenses, to which she replied, This flame occasions trouble to my body indeed, but it hath in no ways broken my spirit. But he who now proudly looks down upon me from yonder lofty place, pointing to the cardinal, shall ere long be ignominiously thrown down, as now he proudly lolls about at his ease. The hangman that was his tormentor sat down upon his knees and said, Sir, I pray you to forgive me, for I am not guilty of your death. To whom he answered, Come hither to me. And when he was come to him, he kissed his cheek and said, Lo, here is a token that I forgive thee. And then he was put upon the gibbet and hanged and burned to powder. And when the people beheld the great tormenting, they might not withhold from piteous mourning and complaining of this innocent lamb's slaughter. It was not long after the martyrdom of this blessed man of God, Master George Wishart, who was put to death by David Beaton, the bloody archbishop and cardinal of Scotland, that on the first day of March in 1546, that the said David Beaton, who by the just revenge of God's mighty judgment, was slain in his own castle of St. Andrews by the hands of one Leslie and other gentlemen, who, by the Lord stirred up, break in suddenly upon him, and in his bed murdered him, while he cried out, Alas, alas, slay me not, I am a priest. And so like a butcher he lived, and like a butcher he died, and lay seven months and more unburied, and at last, like a carrion, was buried in a dunghill. One last interesting note on the life of David Beaton is that he was known for punishing those who advocated against the celibacy of the clergy while he lived in a castle with his mistress, with whom he had eight children. His oldest surviving son would later become a Protestant and master of the house to James VI, King of Scotland and later England, and his queen, Anne of Denmark. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The successor of David Beaton as the Archbishop of St. Andrews was John Hamilton, who followed in the footsteps of his predecessors in an effort to stymie the growth of Protestantism. And the last martyr to die in the Scottish Reformation was Walter Mill, or Milne, but John Fox calls him Mill, so that's what we'll use. Walter was born in 1476, and as a younger man, he had traveled to Germany where he had heard the doctrines of the Reformation and believed them. And he later came back to Scotland as a priest in the city of Montrose, which seemed to be quite a popular place for Reformation teaching in Scotland, as it was a town most of the Reformers frequented. During David Beaton's tenure as Archbishop, evidence was brought against Walter of heresy, and he was to be condemned and burned wherever he was found. So he fled, but we don't really know where he went to. But then later he returns to Scotland, and at this point he's taken a wife, which he was not supposed to do as a priest— but apparently, it's okay to have a longtime mistress, just not a wife. It's just weird. 
But Walter, who was now an old man at 82 or 83, was still preaching and teaching the doctrines of grace in people's homes when he was arrested for teaching these doctrines and then for breaking the laws of celibacy and was imprisoned at St. Andrews. And he was treated so horribly um, in prison, especially given his age, in order to pressure him to recant. And he was even offered this cushy appointment as an abbot, and then he naturally refused. But when he was officially brought to trial on April 20th, 1558, he was so infirm that he had trouble even walking up the steps. And people were worried if he even had the strength to give a defense. And reading here from his testimony, In front of the assembly of bishops, abbots, and scholars, he was cross-examined by Andrew Oliphant and accused of breaking the Romanist law of celibacy and challenging the dogma of the church, such as the Mass. Of the pilgrimages practiced in that period, he spoke plainly, exposing the corruption, saying that there is no greater whoredom in any place than at your pilgrimages, except it be in common brothels. I couldn't find any information on Andrew Oliphant uh, himself, but I imagine that this rebuke must have stung quite hard for the Archbishop Hamilton, who was the illegitimate son of an earl with a mistress of his own and six children. Walter continues, I am accused of my life. I know I must die once, and therefore, as Christ said to Judas, what thou doest, do quickly. Ye shall know that I will not recant the truth, for I am corn. I am no chaff. I will not be blown away with the wind, nor burst with the flail, but I will abide both. And then he was condemned to be burned at the stake, but the people shut up their shops and refused to sell the wood, the rope, the tender necessary, because they were so disgusted at Walter's treatment. Eventually, they were able to find the materials that were needed, and they commenced with the execution. And while he was being fastened to the stake, he cried out to the people, The cause why I suffer this day is not for any crime, though I acknowledge myself a miserable sinner, but only for the defense of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. I pray God who hath called me by his mercy to seal the truth with my life, which, as I received it from him, so I willingly and joyfully offer it up to his glory." Therefore, as you would escape eternal death, be no longer seduced by the lies of the seed of Antichrist, but depend solely on Jesus Christ and his mercy, that ye may be delivered from condemnation. The death of Walter Mill is considered to be the turning point of the Scottish Reformation. Later that year, Elizabeth I becomes Queen of England, securing England's future as a forever Protestant nation. Mary of Guise, who was the Catholic Queen Regent after the death of James V, died in 1560. And she was listed among John Knox's famous monstrous regime of women. John Knox had returned to Scotland and helped lead the fledgling Protestant movement. He preached a sermon against idols and icons that led to a massive sweeping of removal of iconography from the churches. The Scottish Parliament renounced the Pope's authority and mass was declared illegal. Three years later, in 1561, Queen Mary returned to Scotland after her husband died in France, and she was pushed out of the court by Catherine de Medici. She was a Catholic, but she had little interest in imposing it as a national religion, I think mostly because most of her nobles were Protestant. But the rest of her story is, quite frankly, fascinating, and I cannot figure her out as a person. So definitely look her up if you like diving deep into stuff like this. Was she an overall decent person, or was she a husband-murdering egomaniac? It's hard to say. But her son, James VI, who would later become King of Scotland and then uh, later than that, England, he is the one who commissioned the King James Bible, and he is also an interesting character. Today, a martyr's monument stands at St. Andrew's to commemorate four martyrs of the Scottish Reformation. 
Patrick Hamilton, Henry Forrest, who was burned on a hill for all to see because he possessed a New Testament, and then he also affirmed that Patrick Hamilton was a martyr, and then George Wishart and Walter Mill. Large monograms bearing their initials also exist for Patrick Hamilton and George Wishart on the places where they were burnt. This is one of my first times really reading through some of the accounts in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and he has a quote on the subject of martyrdom that I liked and I wanted to share it. Since it is the will of the Almighty that we should suffer for his name and be persecuted for the sake of his gospel, we patiently submit and are joyful upon the occasion, though the flesh may rebel against the spirit and hearken to the counsel of the old serpent. Yet the truth of the gospel shall prevent such advice from being taken, and Christ shall bruise the serpent's head. We are not comfortless to confinement, for we have faith. We fear not affliction, for we have hope. And we forgive our enemies, for we have charity. Be not under apprehensions for us, for we are happy in confinement through the promises of God, glory in our bonds, and exult in being thought worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. We desire not to be released, but to be blessed with fortitude. We ask not for liberty, but for the power of perseverance, and wish for no change in our condition, but that which places a crown of martyrdom upon our heads. As always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.